Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast whose host is going to lose it if she hears the lost colony of Roanoke mentioned even one more time on one of those spooky, unsolved mysteries of history TikTok accounts. Welcome back to yet another episode of Bitchy History. You all have no idea how amazing it is that I have managed to keep this show on the rails and consistently on schedule. It definitely helps that I decided to wait until the spring semester was over to get it started. I have ADHD, and keeping myself on a totally self-imposed schedule is a nightmare, usually. So on Monday, we focused mostly on the Spanish colonization of the New World, which mostly focused on the Caribbean and the South and Central American areas. I'm the first to admit that I could probably spend a dozen episodes on that history easily, but let's remember that the episodes for this show are largely based on my Intro to American History course, in which I have 16 weeks to cover everything from the first native migration to the New World to post-9-11 America. So I tend to skim some of the areas in order to get to the American part of American history. Since this show does not have a 16-week limit on it, I do get to expand on my usual lectures a bit, but I'm also not being paid by anyone, so I get to choose which parts I expand on, which means that today we're shifting northward, the colonization of what is now New England, to be specific. Spain focused their colonization attempts further south, leaving the other three major players of the New World colonization to duke it out over the North American continent. Those three would be France, the Netherlands, and England. We'll be discussing all three today, starting with their reasons for colonization, how they practiced colonization, and the impact it had on North American society. The interplay between French, Dutch, and English cultures are at the core of some of the major tension points in American history, after all. We'll be talking about English colonialism last, because it's going to take more than a single episode, so you get a cliffhanger today. Yay! So between France and the Netherlands, let's flip a coin. And it looks like France wins. Let's break out a croissant, or some wine. I'm not judging. This episode comes out at 8 a.m. Eastern, but that does not mean that's when you're listening to it. And now, let's talk about French colonialism in the New World. In later years, the French would also begin sending Catholic missionaries to convert the natives, but the initial reasons for colonizing the New World were primarily economic. The French built several large settlements throughout what is now Canada and the American Northeast. These settlements were tied together loosely by trading posts and forts that controlled waterways. Compared to the Spanish and English, the French had a fairly low population, with far fewer women and children. Many French fur traders would end up marrying native women and living among native tribes, relying on the experience and skills of natives to increase their profits. This meant they tended to maintain slightly better relations with the natives, which means that we have a lot of ethnographic writings about the natives of this period from the perspectives of the French. One day I may do an episode on that, but I'll save it for another day. Maybe closer to Halloween. And with that cryptic remark, let's move on. French Canada and French Louisiana each had their own royal governor who oversaw the laws and land grants in their territory. This was necessary to enforce some of the restrictions on immigration to French colonial areas, namely that only French Catholics were able to settle. French Protestants would end up settling in English-controlled areas instead, which is a detail you should make note of because this whole Catholic versus Protestant segregation thing is going to play a major role down the line in, say, the 1770s or so. However, even with the royal governors in place, much of the government of the French colonies was run by economic interests. For nearly 200 years, the Hudson Bay Company would serve as the de facto government of the French territories. The company was started by two Frenchmen who wanted to exploit the rich fur country of the Hudson Bay region, with 56 trading posts stretching across modern-day Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec. And speaking of Hudson Bay, let's talk a bit about the man it's named for, Henry Hudson. 
Hudson worked for both the British and the Dutch during his time as an explorer of the New World. He was best known for his exploration of present-day Canada and northeastern United States, where his name can be found in Hudson Bay, the Hudson River, and at least one international clothing outlet, which started out as the oldest incorporated joint stock company in the English-speaking world, the Hudson Bay Company. In 1607 and 1608, Hudson made two attempts on behalf of English merchants to find the rumored Northeast Passage to Cathay via a route above the Arctic Circle. He failed. In 1609, he landed in North America on behalf of the Dutch East India Company and explored the region around the modern-day New York metropolitan area. His explorations would lay the foundations for the later Dutch colonization of the New World. Though his name is pretty well remembered, his death is less well known, mostly because we actually don't know when he died, but we can make a pretty good guess. On his final expedition in 1611, after wintering on the shores of James Bay, Hudson wanted to press on west, but most of his crew was not having it. They were cold, they were hungry, and they wanted to go home. When Hudson didn't agree to this, they mutinied. The mutineers cast Hudson, his son, and seven other members of the crew adrift. Hudson and the rest of this group were never seen again. Now, that doesn't mean that his son and the other men definitely died in 1611. There were plenty of native tribes in the area where they might have found shelter, but they never made it back to Europe, and we've never found any record of them, so it's more than likely they died soon after. Dick moved by his crew, but honestly, we've all had to quiet quit a toxic work environment a time or two in our lives, right? Anyway, since the final voyage of Hudson's career was for the Dutch, it seems like a good time to talk about the Dutch colonization of the New World. The Dutch reached unification when they successfully won independence from Spain in 1581 during the Dutch Revolt. What were they revolting against, exactly? Well... Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! Sorry, I couldn't resist. Anyway, once they had kicked the Monty Python skit out and they were independent, they put their foot on the gas to join the international maritime trade that was going on at the time. Inexplicably, they somehow managed to overtake the spice trade from Portugal despite some really, truly horrific false starts, which I might one day make an episode on, because honestly, the history of the Dutch East India Company is extremely wild. With a stronghold on Asian trade, the Dutch could have just ignored the Western New World totally if they'd really wanted to, but instead they formed the Dutch West India Company and decided to diversify their holdings. Unlike Catholic Spain and France, the Calvinist Dutch had little to no interest in religious conversion as part of their colonization. The wish to colonize was based on profit and finding an outlet for an ever-growing population. In the early 17th century, the Dutch established a settlement at the southern tip of modern-day Manhattan Island that would serve as the seat of their colonial government in New Netherland, and they named it New Amsterdam. And if you've ever listened to They Might Be Giants, you know exactly how that story goes. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. And while They Might Be Giants might not be able to tell you why old New York was once New Amsterdam, I certainly can and will. But first, let's talk about Dutch colonization itself. The Dutch established something called the Patroon System, in which the Dutch West India Company offered the title of Patroon, or Patron, and a large estate to anyone who would bring 50 adults to settle them as tenants on their land. The Dutch colonization of the New World would never grow to the size of the English or even the French. By 1655, the population of New Netherland had grown to about 2,000 people, with about 1,500 of those living in New Amsterdam. By 1664, the population of New Netherland had risen to almost 9,000 people, 7,500 of whom lived in New Amsterdam. 1,000 of them lived near Fort Orange and the remainder in other small towns and villages. 
Despite being a small and short-lived colonial attempt, the Dutch left cultural reminders all over American culture. Everything from sports like bowling and ice skating to presidents like Van Buren and Roosevelt. And in New York, names like Brooklyn and Yonkers and the Bowery all come from Dutch words. Yonkers in particular has a very interesting Dutch history. The name originates with a Dutch honorific, which a Dutch lawyer and landowner named Adrian Vanderdonk used. Vanderdonk was a particularly active part of New Amsterdam's culture, making an effort to explore the New World and write detailed accounts of the land, vegetation, animals, topography, and climate. His writing, including one pamphlet titled A Description of New Netherland, became a promotional tool to encourage immigration to the colony. During his explorations, he also made an effort to learn the language and culture of the native tribes in the area, which made him an invaluable translator and mediator when inevitable conflicts arose between the Dutch West India Company and the local tribes. It was because of this aid to the company that he would receive a land grant of 24,000 acres on the mainland just north of Manhattan, which is now present-day Yonkers. But aside from being the namesake of this particular area of New York State, Vanderdonk was significant to American history in another way. The New Netherlands colony was owned and operated by a private business, not a government, and as such, the rights of the people in the colony were kind of limited. Vanderdonk was one of the first activists for a Republican form of government in the trading post. His advocacy for democratic rule in New Amsterdam would eventually lead to the granting of city rights to New Amsterdam in 1653, the first declaration of rights and liberty on American soil. The Dutch colony of New Netherlands didn't last that long in the grand scheme of things. By 1664, it was under English control. I could go into the hows and whys of that, but this is an American history podcast, not the history of the Anglo-Dutch Wars. Suffice to say that the English and the Dutch had beef, that beef ended with the Treaty of Breda, and England kept New York in exchange for giving up Suriname and South America and the island of Run in the East Indies to the Dutch. As a side note, one of the Dutch politicians involved in the Treaty of Breda was later lynched and eaten by an angry mob of Dutch rioters. Yes, I said eaten, as in cannibalism. But this was like five years later and probably completely unrelated to the Treaty of Breda. I just thought that this was important information you needed to know about the Dutch. Now that I've completely scared you off of touring Amsterdam, Actually, the cannibalism occurred in The Hague. Amsterdam is cannibal history-free, as far as I know. Anyway, let's segue into the English colonization of the New World. Honestly, English colonization is basically all we're going to be talking about next week at all. I apologize, but that is just the way American history goes. So it's the 1580s, you're Queen Elizabeth, and you've been ruling for around 20 years now, and you're kind of getting the hang of this whole ruling thing. You've solidified the Church of England, you've ended some very tense religious conflicts, and you are ready to join in on gobbling up as much of the undeveloped New World as all the other European countries around you. There's a whole host of reasons why England is interested in the New World. Like the Dutch, they want to find a new passage to the East Indies, and they keep hoping they're going to find that Northeast Passage. Hint, they will not. They want resources, they want land, and a few people just want to get the heck out of England because no one likes their stupid Puritan separatist religion anymore, and they figure that the New World will be a nice place to start fresh. But we'll talk more about the Pilgrims next Thursday. Because they operated very differently, we can divide the colonies in New England into the southern and northern colonies. Southern colonies were primarily built to make a profit. Joint stock companies with investors would put money in to start the colony with the promise that it would turn a profit. 
Sometimes this succeeded, sometimes it failed very badly. Northern colonies generally also had joint stock companies that expected profit, but that was only a means to an end for the more family-focused Puritan colonists that tended to settle in the North. The Southern colonies started with the establishment of the first permanent English settlement in North America, Roanoke, in 1585, which did not disappear through any creepy supernatural means. I mean it, it didn't. Please stop listening to Coast to Coast on AM radio. Roanoke Colony was founded by Governor Ralph Lane in 1585 on Roanoke Island in what is now Dare County, North Carolina. Starting out, they didn't have enough supplies and they didn't get along with their neighbors very well, which is going to become a repeated theme for English colonies in America. Let me tell you that right now. The 1585 colony failed, and Lane abandoned it, returning to England. This didn't make the owner of the colony, Sir Walter Raleigh, very happy, so they tried again in 1587. This new colony was governed by John White. White leaves on a supply run back to England, but his return is delayed, and he doesn't get back until 1590, by which time the colonists probably had decided that he hadn't just run to the store for a pack of smokes and had come to believe that he wasn't coming back at all. Three years is a long time to take getting groceries. Which leads us to why it's very, very dumb to think that the disappearance of these colonists is at all mysterious. When White finally did get back to Roanoke, he found an abandoned settlement. The only message was the word Croatoan carved in the wooden palisade. White assumed that this referred to the Croatoan tribe, which lived on Hatteras Island, about 65 miles-ish south of Roanoke. White planned to go check on them, but bad weather prevented him, and he returned to England. So it's true that we don't know exactly what happened to the colonists. I suppose that is a mystery, but they didn't vanish into a sinkhole or get abducted by aliens. They moved, probably due to bad weather, poor crops, disease, or any other number of hardships that could occur with a brand new settlement. Investigations by colonists at Jamestown nearly 20 years later produced reports of stories of people with European features in Native American villages, and John Lawson, an English explorer and naturalist, wrote a century later in his 1709 work, A New Voyage to Carolina, that he met Croatoans living on Hatteras Island who claimed to be descendants from white settlers. Which would seem to indicate that the colonists, whether by force or by choice, had, well, gone native, quite literally, assimilated into the local tribes in order to survive. So yes, the colony was lost, but the explanation for it is hardly as mysterious as popular culture has tried to make it seem. I'm looking at you, American Horror Story and Supernatural. It's enough of a tragedy that John White would never know what became of his daughter Eleanor or granddaughter, the famous Virginia Dare, without adding some spooky element to the entire debacle. The next permanent settlement by the English in the South would also be a bit of a debacle, Jamestown in 1607, but we'll get into that on Monday. Once again, thanks for showing up to listen to me bitch about history. Come back on Monday where we will be exploring the history of Jamestown and diving into the story of Pocahontas, because she deserves so much better than the treatment Disney gave her, especially that second movie. What the actual fuck was that, Disney? Please share this podcast if you're enjoying it and join the podcast Discord, follow me on TikTok, and contribute to my tip jar slash coffee fund at the link tree in the podcast description if you feel moved to do so. You can also become a supporter of the podcast through Spotify and pay a small monthly subscription to help me keep paying my bills if you really enjoy my content. No pressure, but I do have student loans and car payments to make.